Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou, and we are going to take you against the grain for the next couple of hours. Yep. That's right. We are going to talk later in the show about Finland and Sweden moving steadily toward full NATO membership. And also what exactly, in the meantime, these security assurances from the UK mean. We will talk about the ongoing impact of um, energy restrictions, uh, sort of energy shortage, as well as sanctions on Russia and what what exactly is happening to the Russian economy in the short term and whether that's going to change in the long term. Because again, short term effects seem to be wild. Pretty pretty positive. Yeah, very strange. Very strange. Um, We are going to ask uh, about U.S. aid for some refugees and not others. We will talk about the resurgence of Saudi Aramco, which I think is very interesting, right? Saudi Aramco in 2019 had a very disappointing IPO, disappointing at least for the crown prince. And you can say maybe it was maybe their expectations were too high, but now it has come back. It is the most um, the most valuable company in the world. It is Mm -hmm. edged out Apple, which has seen its fortunes fall along with tech Mm -hmm. stocks and basically everything else in the U.S. stock market today. Uh, so we'll talk about what what that means um, and whether the U.S. really can do anything to influence OPEC because it's reviving uh, an effort that it is sort of brought up and, and talked about over decades, really, which seems like it does not have any uh, staying power. Right. But whether anything can actually be done and what what it would take to actually actually, you know, put some pressure on the cartel is going to be an interesting conversation. I, by the by, just thinking like, I don't know if the U.S. really knows how to do pressure other than threaten either military, like actually threaten a military invasion Mm -hmm. or threaten regime change. Yes. And it can't really do either of those things in Saudi Arabia. What are you going to do? Are you going to up and you're going to get rid of the Sauds? I mean, then what do you have? So it's it is very interesting when you have kind of written yourself into this corner that we really have as a country where, yeah, we have this big threatening army that we are not afraid to use. And everyone in the world knows that. And we pretend we only act in self-defense. But that's basically our negotiating tool. And then, like, we'll kick you out of government one way or another. Right. But we don't have anything else. No, we really don't have anything else. And, you know, if if you look at the different avenues of possible pressure against the Saudis, the Saudis can outweigh all of them. Yeah. It's, it's like they they need us a lot less than we need them. It's a very interesting uh, relationship to contemplate. And I think and I think what, one of the reasons that makes it so, uh, you know, that I keep coming back to it and keep coming. It's I think it reveals a lot about the United States and reveals a lot about the sort of mythology we have of ourselves as a country of, you know, self-sufficient. We do this. We do that. We got our fingers in all these pies. Mm-hmm. We can do all these things. We're the supplier of, of uh, you know. A through Z to the world. But in yes. fact, it's a lot of that is a mirage. And we've really, you know, we've sort of let our economy uh, in some ways, it really feels like be as dependent on a few on a few industries as mm-hmm. these other nations that we sort of ridicule for being energy dependent or, you know, not yeah, diversifying. You see, we're dependent on the arms industry. Yeah, that's what that's it is. What this comes I mean, down to. you know, I mean, of course, we I don't want to pretend that we're exactly the same as a country that's got no income but oil. But that really, right. you know. I don't know if the if the real fear about like actually pushing Saudi Arabia is losing them as an arms client, man, that's an industry that we need to uh, mm-hmm. change and reform. Agreed. Yeah. 
We are also going to talk about this report issued yesterday by the Department of the Interior on its initial research into the 150-year history of Indian boarding schools. Uh, I mean, very, very initial results so far, but still absolutely heartbreaking and incredible that this is the first the first real government attempt Mm -hmm. to look at that history. Mm -hmm. I think that is uh, shameful. And how many mass graves do you think they're going to find? Oh, yeah. I mean, they're going to be everywhere. They found 53 already. Right. And that is just they, you know, I think they looked at the records of uh, 19 schools and found 500 children who died and 53 burial sites. I mean, absolutely awful. We're going to talk about the failure of Congress to pass legislation on abortion and what should be done about Joe Manchin. John, I think we maybe actually need to be nice to Joe Manchin. It seems that way. I I don't like Joe Manchin. I'm not a fan of Joe Manchin. But as I said on the show a couple of days ago, if the Democratic Party wants to be this big tent party where everybody's welcome, then you're going to have to just swallow hard and accept that Joe Manchin is not going to be a reliable vote. Is it worth it? I would say absolutely yes if you're a Democrat, because with Joe Manchin as a member of your party with a 50-50 split, you get to chair all of the Senate committees and subcommittees. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's a hard deal. It's a a hard situation to swallow, really. But so I'm looking forward to that conversation. And we are going to see what update we have on yesterday's economic news. Have they taken a second look at the figures already and gone, oh, no, we forgot to carry a decimal here. or We (laughs) forgot to add the one and flip the birdie or whatever it is you do (laughs) to do math. And we'll see what other indicators we have learned and what that tells us about our future. Uh, but before we get to those stories, uh, there are a couple other headlines that we wanted to to get into. Yeah, there was a story from Texas that I've been following for a long time just because I'm interested. You may recall, Michelle, uh, about five years ago, there was a woman in Houston, Texas, who was a convicted felon out on parole um, and who was told that she could vote. So she went to the polling place for the 2016 election She said to the poll worker, I'm a convicted felon, but I registered and the registration seems to have gone through. And the poll worker said, oh, yes, you can vote. Yeah. So she voted. Well, she was arrested for voter fraud and she fought it, saying that the poll worker had told her that she could vote, that she had no criminal intent by voting. And she was given a provisional ballot that was not tallied or counted anyway. You know, whatever happened to mens rea, either you have the intent to break the law or you don't. And if you don't, then you shouldn't be charged with a crime. Well, they charged her with voter fraud. She went to trial and she was found guilty and she was sentenced to five years in prison. If you can imagine. It's awful. It's a terrible injustice. Now, she appealed. And because this was a national case, she was allowed to remain free on bond. So she's been free for the last five and a half years waiting for this thing to play out. Well, she lost at the first level of appeal. That was the county um, appeal. Now the state of Texas Court of Appeals has ruled in her favor and has said that the lower court erred in two different ways. So It has to reconsider the case now. It's not over yet. Um, She's just won this one step. 
but it makes me wonder how people can deliberately go to the polls to vote twice, which we've seen six or seven different times in cases where people wanted to vote for Donald Trump twice and get off with probation. And what about Mark Meadows, mm-hmm. the, the former White House chief of staff who was registered to vote in North Carolina and in Virginia and voted in both places? And he said, oh, my bad. Uh, I just figured they wouldn't count one of those votes. <laughs> and uh, he's not been charged with a crime. Oh, what an outrage. Only you know, in America. That does remind me of my favorite. Uh, I feel bad saying this is my favorite tidbit about El- Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, because, you know, he de- he deserves much more than to be remembered for his, uh, his sad and sort of goofy death. But yes. he was found dead yes. on election day. Yes. Wearing another man's clothes. And a theory about why that was the case, why he was wearing somebody else's clothes, is that he had been, it was presented to me when I first heard it that he, like, might have done it voluntarily, sort of got drunk and then was like, yeah, sure, give me, you know, give me tuppence and I'll go cast a ballot for ye, (laughs) whatever. Uh, But there were apparently roving gangs that would grab people and force them to go and vote for their candidate. Jeez. And like, so come back, change your clothes. Yeah, here's another beer. Go and uh-huh. go and vote again. Come back. OK, here, put on Bobby's clothes. Yeah. I had a drink in the bar where he died in the entryway. Oh, no. Yeah, it's it's kind of a tourist attraction in uh, in uh, Baltimore. He died right in the and now and now scholars think that he actually died of uh, of diabetic shock. Hmm. Yeah. I also have heard that, you know, there was he had this reputation as a drunkard, but actually uh, it, it seems like maybe he just could not process alcohol. So yes. he wasn't actually drinking any more than anybody else was. He right. just his yeah. body just wouldn't process Which it. Which is the same. Sorry, while we're on sort of families and genetics, <laughs> you know that the, I don't know if it's actually theory or uh, demonstrated, but the, the Hemingway's, the Hemingway curse that suicide yeah. is because maybe they actually have a genetic problem metabolizing lead. And so what happens is oh over gosh. your life, it's either lead or iron, but it slowly, this, this toxin builds up in your system. More normal people can process it as waste. It's probably and iron. It, it's iron. It builds up. It makes you incredibly, de- makes you sort of slowly lose your mind, get depressed, go crazy. And that's why you kill yourself. My best friend from college um, ha- had a terrible problem, terrible problem with psoriasis. Like he would get this plaque psoriasis all over his face and his arms. And he looked like he'd been in a fire mm-hmm. and he had these unusually high levels of, of iron did the research himself. Cause a half a dozen doctors had no idea what was wrong with him. They were just giving him steroids that just made him sick and swollen. And so he found a, a journal. It was in an Irish uh, medical journal, an article about people of Irish descent who can't, they genetically can't process iron. Mm. He cut out all red meat. The whole thing just went away. See? Like I'm, like magic. Now, over the course of the show, John, you should look up the Hemingway curse and see if I've gotten it, gotten it correct. And my recollection, you recollection right. is right. But yeah, that is a theory for why, why you have this rash of suicides in this family. Right. Uh, the other story that we wanted to get to before we bring on our first guests is, uh, well, hey, crypto yeah. hasn't wow. rebounded, has not rebounded. Uh, no. It was crashing yesterday. Yesterday, Bitcoin dipping below that $30,000 benchmark was a big deal. Uh, it is down to, I think it was down to like 20, 26,000 earlier today. Yeah. 
And so it's almost like in difficult economic times, people are reluctant to trust these things that don't seem to represent anything and sort of gain value only as wealthy or influential people say they are valuable. Well, and and now you can buy um, an NFT of Madonna naked. Yeah. How's that for your IRA? I mean... Your 401k. You just look at a picture. You know what I mean? It's like, it's not like it's a unique thing. Bitcoin went as low as uh, just under 26,000 Thursday morning. And, and what was it? It was like 72,000? 60 is what I remember, but you you could be right. It's lost I'm about, it's it lost about half its value. Yeah. The thing, I mean, crypto, I'm not going to say that I think cryptocurrencies don't couldn't possibly do anything right they seem to be sort of interesting ways to transfer actual value and like get around limitations on the traditional financial system but i you know i'm very concerned about uh the trend toward having big institutional investors start investing in Mm -hmm. them like starting investing canadian pension funds i think that is really terrible that is right i mean i think that the tragedy here is going to be the individual's who are seeing half of their life savings wiped out, right? Who went all in on this thing because they were told to by other people and then they researched all this stuff that said, yeah, here, it's the next big thing. And and have put all their eggs in that particular basket. You know, that's not a a wave of like human suffering that I want to see. I'm smiling because one of the engineers uh, here at Sputnik told me, Four years ago, oh, you should buy Bitcoin. It's going crazy. So I put in $400 and in six weeks it went up to $800 and I sold it. Yeah. So I look like a genius. If you get in and get out of the right. I have a friend (laughs) who bought a house with Bitcoin because he was a really early investor and then just sat around. And then one day you got a, you know, sure, I'll buy a Bitcoin. Sure. Or whatever, you know, whatever it's worth. And then one day it's worth (laughs) $30,000. Cool. You know. And the other thing I think is important as we look at this crypto crash is that everything is down. Tech stocks are down. That's why Apple has fallen, you know, below Saudi Aramco in evaluation that the NASDAQ composite, I think, lost 4% earlier this week. It had its worst month in April since 2008. So, you know, stocks are down. Equities are down. Everything is down. So it is not as a crypto is is bucking the market. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I think is interesting, um, and maybe this is just because I'm not as economically literate as I should be. But all of these, like, oh my gosh, it hasn't been this low since. Right. It's all like 2021 right. or 2020. Oh my right. gosh, uh, you know, Ether, with another coin that's down. Yes. It hasn't been this low since July 2021. Okay. Uh, yeah, big well, deal. <laughs> yeah. So it, uh, yeah, on one hand, you know, you have all the people who are rubbing their hands together going, this is the end of crypto, which it might be. But Again, we are talking about things that have such a that have such a short history anyway. That yes. who, who knows what is happening? So to, to sum up, who knows what's happening? But they're down today, <laughs> basically. Um, oh, the, I mean, these stable coins, which is not a thing I'm going to attempt to explain because I don't really I don't get it. And I don't know if I don't get it because I haven't figured it out or if it's just one of those things where they try to pretend it's really complicated. And then you go. Oh, no, I can see like behind all this cloud, you just tether. stable coins are supposed to be tethered to the value of the U.S. dollar. So they're a do, they're worth a dollar. I don't know why you wouldn't just use a dollar. You just use a dollar. I guess there are reasons for that. But they, you know, un, unclipped one from the dollar. And that was seen as, a you know, a real uh, the first horseman of Ar- Armageddon for cryptocurrency. Right. We'll see. 
The other thing that I wanted to mention is that this uh, long awaited, at least by me, ACN conference in D.C. is starting. It's going to start with a dinner with Joe Biden at the White House today, and then they will have talks at the State Department tomorrow. And I've seen some, you know, I, I think the U.S. relationship. I lived in Southeast Asia for quite a long time. And so I'm particularly interested in that part of the world and also in the U.S. relationship with that part of the world, which is pretty across the board, just uh, exploitative, no matter what. Right. And so I'm always interested in how we approach those different countries, you know, how unique the bilateral relationships are versus our our engagement with the region as a whole. And, you know, how much is this is going to be just lip service and also you know, efforts to rally these countries against China, which is their neighbor, which is a much more significant trading partner for all of them than the U.S. is. And it's interesting to me that Reuters presents this as President Joe Biden will host Southeast Asian leaders in Washington this week, seeking to show his administration remains focused on the Indo-Pacific and the long term challenge of China, despite the Ukraine crisis. And again, you think like Laos, Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, Brunei, all these countries are going to be like, oh, yeah, we're really yeah, we really want to join you in addressing the challenge of China, mm-hmm, who mm-hmm. is right here. Right. Who we also have complicated relationships with, but right. much more sort of uh, valuable and concrete ones. I think that is very interesting. It's also been pointed out that, you know, this is a much less uh, politically meaty summit than the one Obama um went to in 2016, where there he ha- he met with the leaders twice. Biden's only meeting once. There, he hasn't Biden hasn't had bilateral meetings with any of these leaders. We nope. only the president of Singapore visited the White House so far in his term. So it does really look like he is going to attempt to show this, but whether it's going to be any more than show, I think, is really up in the air. Yep. Yep. I think you're right. Um, you know, usually with these summits, we expect uh, so much to happen and uh, nobody's even really talking about this one. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I mean, I, yeah, I was going to say no one cares about Southeast Asia, but I do. Sure. <laughs> we'll, see. we'll see what happens tomorrow and on Monday. We'll take a quick break here and come back with our first guest and some more talk about Europe. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Finland's president and prime minister yesterday announced their support for the country's effort to join NATO, and Sweden said it would join the alliance as well. This comes after the Finnish parliament voted 94 to 6 to join NATO, so now the application will be formally submitted. The Russian government said that they would not look kindly on a Finnish application or the expected Swedish application, but Moscow gave no specifics as to exactly what its response would be. The UK, meanwhile, has offered Finland and Sweden something that they're calling security guarantees should they be threatened by Russia. That comes down to intelligence sharing, it seems, uh, at this early stage. In other news, one of the Conservative Party's biggest donors in the UK is being accused of funneling $645,000 to the Tories from a Russian bank account. Nobody's exactly sure 
what that means yet, but it is likely to cause some political problems for Boris Johnson. And the Senate Energy Committee passed a bill called the No Oil Producing and Exporting Cartels, or NOPEC, bill by a bipartisan vote of 17 to 4. The bill would better regulate oil production, but the UAE's oil minister said that it would create chaos and it could send oil prices to $500 a barrel. We're joined by Jim Jatras. He's a former U.S. diplomat and former senior foreign policy advisor to the Senate Republican leadership. Welcome back, Jim. Hi, John. It's good to be back. I hope you can hear me okay. My connection is not very good today. Yeah, uh, we'll tell our listeners uh, we're having a little bit of a technical problem with Jim. We think it's on our end, but we're going to do our best. So, Jim, we've we've seen a lot of reporting over the last uh, two or three months that Finland and Sweden are determined to join NATO. Public opinion polls show support in the 70s and in the 80s and support in the two countries' parliaments is almost unanimous. Both Finland and Sweden have long been neutral, and I mean for many, many decades. Why the change now? What's the threat to these countries? Well, there is no threat to these countries, but let's remember the Nordic countries have a high degree of social cohesion and trust in authority. So when government, when the news media all tell them that the Russians are bad, that they're a threat to these countries, unfortunately, these people tend to fall in line. And I think, you know, without putting too fine a point on it, you look at some of the leadership of these countries, they're not like the kind of grizzled well, there you go. Yep, that's our tech <laughs> that's problem. A technical difficulty right there. We're going we'll to try, and try, to, back. try mm-hmm. to get back to them, yeah. try and fix that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's a good point. I, I hadn't thought about social cohesion. And they do have a, a respect for authority there. Yeah. Ma- yeah, maybe that's why crime is so low. Who knows? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I also think that this is, I think it would be, I was listening to, I forget if it was the NPR morning podcast or the Wall Street Journal morning podcast, but of course they were talking about this as everybody is and noting that, you know, if if you had asked about support for joining NATO, I think they were saying they were using Finland as an example uh, in past years, it would have been really low. You would have seen maybe a quarter of the population oh, has crept steadily up. Right. And so I uh-huh. do think that, you know, I think that the impact of this invasion of Ukraine is obviously being seen there. I think, I think also, right. you know. Uh, this I this image of Russia as a as a, a rogue state who's going to do whatever it wants that's uh, you know has a, a thirst for territorial con- conquest you know there are consequences to promoting that idea you know w- wherever the truth in it lies right yes. and they are countries are always most wary of their neighbors so you know I had a my my eleventh grade world cultures teacher Mrs Dorothy Polino one of the greatest teachers I ever had in my life. She really impacted my life and and really uh, helped me to choose a career at the CIA. Huh. She was in um, military intelligence. Did you write to her from jail and say, thanks a lot? Oh, no, she <laughs> she uh, she passed away. But I think she would have been proud of me. Um, she she used to talk about um, Finland a lot. Because when I was in high school, of course, it was still the Soviet Union. The Soviets had invaded Finland in the late 1930s. That didn't work out well for them. And the agreement that Finland and the Soviet Union came to was that Finland would be a neutral country with a pro-Soviet foreign policy. And then when the Soviet Union fell apart, they remained neutral, 
but the foreign policy was freed up to, you know, so that they could do whatever they wanted to do. So I think you're right. I think Jim is right that that times have changed relatively incrementally, but this Ukraine war may have pushed public opinion to where it is now. Jim, uh, are you back with us? Can you hear me? I am. I can hear you. I hope you can hear me okay. Yeah, that sounds nice and clear, actually. I I wanted to uh, continue on about uh, Finland and Sweden. You know, this support is parliamentary. It's it's public. It was always my understanding that neutrality helped both countries to grow their economies. So do you see this decision to join NATO as as changing anything societally or economically, or do you think they'll just step into this new role and everybody's going to live happily ever after? I don't, I don't quite understand what they think is going to help them in right. the so-called new role. I mean, uh, let's look, look at the facts. Finland has a population about the size of St. Petersburg. It's totally dependent on Russia for its energy. Right. The economy is closely linked to Russia. They will gain nothing from this. But on the other hand, any so-called security guarantee uh, from the West is absolutely meaningless. That's not to say that Russia threatens them in any way. But if they want to go down the road of Ukraine and start to be part of the NATO threat toward Russia, I think there will be very severe consequences. I don't know what they are. I don't think the Russians are as concerned about Sweden as they are about Finland. Yeah, you raise a, a good point about these security guarantees, too. Uh, you know, <laughs> Finland is a is a, a border country of of Russia. And actually, I think Sweden in the very far north. No, actually, it doesn't. It's Norway that sort of goes over over the top of Sweden and borders with Russia. But in any event, um, Finland, at least, is borders has a very long border with with Russia. We've seen references to British intelligence sharing and British intelligence support. But big deal. What can the UK do to protect these countries from Russia? This seems to me to be just lip service. It's totally lip service. I think partly, too, John, we're seeing the effects of this propaganda campaign that somehow the Ukrainians are winning, Russia's on its last legs. If there's a united West confronting Russia, Russia will collapse and then it will be regime change. Right. I think there's quite of a hysteria and uh, obviously a very clear Russophobic campaign that's been built up in the media. So I think there's kind of a, a kind of a loss of rationality and and. Uh, and reality that we're seeing reflected here, I think when events in Ukraine become very clear, as I think they will be in the not too distant future, maybe they'll have to wake up and smell the coffee. But mm. I don't know. We saw these reports this morning, Jim, that six hundred and forty five thousand dollars for the British Conservative Party was funneled from a Russian bank account. Can you tell us what this means if it's if it's true, it would it would likely be illegal. But was this a conspiracy or was it a donor who was trying to pull a fast one or was it a donor who was too stupid to know that what he was doing was illegal? All of the above. To tell the truth, John, I don't know much about the story. Assuming it's true, I, I can't believe the Russian government no. have anything to do with it. Why would they want to fund the conservative party? Exactly. Party in Britain, for that matter. Now, maybe some oligarch or other who's trying to feather his own nest, who has property in Britain, was essentially trying to, you know, do something to, to his own benefit and was too stupid in the way he went about doing it. 
I want to switch, Jim, and uh, and talk about this NOPEC bill. You know, I really didn't know much about it until I read the uh, the piece in the Washington Post. Uh, the name is hilarious to me, and it's actually offensive if you're if you're an OPEC member. Um, but certainly, many Americans are are frustrated by OPEC's near monopoly on the determination of oil prices, and the Saudis are are refusing to increase production, so prices remain um, at record high levels. This bill had broad bipartisan support, which is very unusual in today's U.S. Senate. If it passes into law, what would it actually do? Is is this good for Americans or would it be a disaster like the UAE oil minister says it's going to be? I think it would be a disaster. I honestly, when I looked up on the congressional website what the bill actually does, I couldn't help laughing. What this is is another exercise in what they call lawfare, where the right. authorities think they can legislate for the whole planet. So what they're doing here is saying, well, if you countries outside the United States collude on the price of oil, we're going to strip you of sovereign immunity and you can be sued in American courts and held responsible for antitrust wow. violations. Wow. Who do these people think they are? Do they really think they can pass laws to the entire world, especially at a time when it's pretty clear that the unipolar American reach across the globe to dictate to other countries is is just not working. I mean, if they were looking for a way to drive the Gulf states and the Saudis into the hands of Russia, China, and the rest of Eurasia, I don't think they could come up with a better plan. Actually, that was something that we were talking about yeah. a few minutes ago. Yeah. How would you even collect? Yeah, you know how what do I mean? you like, what is it? It's just, it, yeah. We're going to have just, the local sheriff go to the American embassy and confiscate the typewriters? Yeah, I know. I mean, I, I'm seriously, just, how do you collect? You can't. Yeah. You can't collect something like that. Michelle and I were talking about this uh, before the show started, Jim, where it, where it seems like like it's it's the the Saudis at least who who have the upper hand right now in relations with the United States. It's like we care more about upsetting the the balance of our relations than than they do we're less likely to upset the balance of those relations and the saudis eh, you know they they buy our weapons we buy their oil but they can replace our weapons with british french russian chinese turkish all different kinds of weapons and so you know maybe they don't need us as as much as we need them at least in the current context well, I think what they especially wanted for all these years from Washington was a security guarantee that that they would that Washington would look out for Saudi interests, Gulf state interests, and that we would essentially be their military force, their air force, their navy. And I think as they look at the changing power relationships in the world, they're they're, they're they've got they've got their finger up in the breeze and they see which way the wind is blowing. And that I think unlike some of the hysterical propaganda that we talked about earlier, that's moving the Swedes and the, and the Finns in a certain direction, the rest of the world, including most of the Middle East, is going in the other direction. And I would include in this, by the way, the Israelis. The Israelis. Oh yeah. When it comes to Washington as well. Oh, I would totally agree with that. And Jim, uh, because you've got so much experience on Capitol Hill, I, I've got to ask you about politics. We've been following a whole variety of outlets. We've been following here on the show the Cook Political Report, Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball, Real Clear Politics, Politico, The Hill. Everybody seems 
to be an agreement that the Democrats until about a month ago were looking at keeping the Senate or even picking up maybe a seat or two in the Senate while losing the House. By two weeks ago, the Democrats were looking at losing one to three seats in the Senate and having the Republicans take over both houses of Congress. Then we saw the leak from the Supreme Court and the Democrats now have a campaign issue with abortion. What do you think that does in some of the close Senate races around the country? And I'm thinking especially of of Georgia, Wisconsin, Nevada, New Hampshire, Ohio, maybe even Pennsylvania. What do you think these races look like now? It's hard to say what the impact will be in some of those swing states, but I think the more profound development because of this is that it will be another step of the, in the direction of, let's face it, breaking this up into more than one country, that we're going to see, for example, uh, some states that will enshrine a right to abortion right through the end of pregnancy in their constitutions, yeah. other states that will have snapback laws that will virtually prohibit abortion, and it just shows you that we're really living in at least two two Americas who really don't like each other very much. I think that's exactly right. And, uh, and I don't think there's any way to put Humpty Dumpty back together. I, I think you're 100% right. I don't think necessarily that anything is going to come of these various secession movements that you read about on Twitter and Facebook. But I think you're right. We've got, we've got two different countries here. And if this is going to go back to the States, to legislate, I think that's exactly what will happen. The states are going to legislate. And then you'll get states like California and Massachusetts and Connecticut that are that are altering their constitutions to enshrine a right to to an abortion. And then countries like, well, we just saw last week, Louisiana passing a bill through committee, at least uh, to to uh, consider abortion to be homicide where they would prosecute people involved. Exactly right. And the thing is, and I think there's, you know, this is going to be, I think, a, a very big recruiting, uh, political recruiting um, uh, mechanism for both parties. Yeah. And frankly, I think the Democrats might be surprised. Whoever leaked this from the Supreme Court thought he was going to win a big, or he, she, win a big coup for their side in the upcoming election. And I think they may be surprised how much the other side is also able to mobilize on this issue. Yeah, I think there's no clear winner in this. Uh, One last question for you. There was a piece in Politico this morning, Jim, um, saying that the Alito draft that was written in February is still the only operative draft and that uh, the chances that that Chief Justice John Roberts has to swing one of the Trump appointees to the other side to to uphold Roe v. Wade uh, is just non-existence, the, uh, non-existent. The only place where it exists is uh, in the, the mouths and the minds of uh, political commentators. Uh, you worked on Capitol Hill. You, you know uh, how these uh, how these judges personal ideologies are. Would you agree with that? I do. And in fact, I have a very good source from somebody who worked inside the Supreme Court. And I was asking, what is the chances that this opinion will be issued as written? Maybe 80 percent. And he said, no, it's well above that. And if anything, 
This controversy has probably forced Justice Roberts, who probably doesn't care one way or the other about the decision itself, to basically think in terms of the integrity of the court and not to visibly see it be bullied around by mobs on the street. Yeah. So I think it's force him probably to write a concurring opinion with the majority and possibly even to join it and make it 6-3. I think yeah. this is going to be counterproductive for the, the pro-abortion side. I, I could see that happening. Okay, we'll leave it there. We were joined by Jim Jatras. Thanks for joining us, Jim. Jim is a former U.S. diplomat and former senior foreign policy advisor to the Senate Republican leadership. You're listening to Political Misfits. We've got a lot more in the next hour and a half, so stay tuned. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou talking about volume one of the report, the U.S. Department of Interior, uh, the investigative report the U.S. Department of Interior uh, has uh, launched into our federal Indian boarding school program. This is called the Federal Indian Boarding School Initiative. And uh, this initial report uh, really uh, brought up some, uh, you know, understandably upsetting, though not surprising findings. Uh, I'm surprised, one, that this is the first comprehensive reckoning that has been undertaken by the U.S. government. Um, The initial results are limited, but this first attempt to comprehensively uncover and compile the horrors inflicted on Native communities did yield some results and more research is promised. We are going to talk about what we have learned and what should follow this this research process Mm -hmm. with Darren Thompson, who's a reporter for Native News Online and Unicorn Riot. Darren, thank you for joining us. Thanks again for having me. So uh, this report gives us an initial tally, again, based on uh, looking at the documents of only 19 schools, right? But the initial tally identifies at least 500 Native American, Alaska Native and Native Hawaiian children who died while attending Indian boarding schools run or supported by the U.S. government. As I said, the government looked at records from 19 schools, but the report identified more than 400 schools and 53 grave sites. So it acknowledges from the start that this is, again, this is initial and more grave sites and deaths will definitely be found. It is broadly agreed that this is just a starting point. And so I wonder if you can talk to us a little bit about, you know, the the scope of this report, what it does confirm and, and where future research is going. Great question. So the initial report confirms that the United States operated or supported federal Indian boarding schools. The locations, the numbers of those of those places, as well as the years. So the number of years that the federal government has funded this particular initiative or, or this effort. So it's a hundred, you're looking at a hundred and 50 years. What it does not do, which you didn't ask necessarily, is identify the students and their names and where they come from. 
So there's so much to look at. And initially the report is an initial report, and that is to confirm, like you mentioned, and what like what you stated, and the fact that this is something that our government has participated in. And the longer road ahead is what does that look like now today? And although like I come from this community and I, and I know what that looks like, uh, the rest of the 99 or 90% of the country does not. Yeah. It's going to be very surprising. Um, you know, I could say everything that I think they're going to find out, but it won't have the same effect until the federal government releases its findings and report to yeah. what they've been able to identify. I also, I mean, we have talked, we've talked on this show about uh, the grave sites that were discovered in Canada. And we've talked about the Canadian boarding school system. Uh, we have talked about the U.S. one. And I, every time I, you know, I, I feel like sometimes we're repeating ourselves and I don't want to just sort of dredge through the horrors of these schools. But, you know, I, I also don't want to ignore them. And so I wonder if you could talk to us about, you know, what what are we talking about? What was the purpose of these schools? What did I put these children through? And then I also want to ask, um, you have people like the president of the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition saying vestiges of this system remain today. And I think it is very important to understand that the U.S. government's oppression of Native communities is not a process that ended a century ago, but that in in many specific ways does continue. And so I wanted to sort of ask you if you see the vestiges of these systems remaining and if you want to remind us of, you know, what was the, the terrible purpose of these schools and the process by which it uh, achieved that purpose? Sure. Very, very good points. And you brought up a very, you brought up someone who is a very dear friend of mine. Mm. Her name is Deborah Parker, and she is right now the executive director of the National Native American Healing Coalition uh, that is doing this work with the Department of Interior. And what she communicates with about vestiges of this system still being in place today, we're talking on a very broad scale of land. And so what the federal government acknowledged in its, in its report is that while this country was focused on obtaining more land, it was just as focused on, quote unquote, taming those who originally are from here. The process of that, and it was less expensive, was to ship and take these children and place them in schools. And some of the things that they endured, of course, were, you know, cultural oppression. You have religious oppression. Uh, there are many of these schools that were operated and solicited to be operated by religious organizations. It's just not one denomination. There, there are several and that is one thing also that this report does not include, and that includes the number of, of students that may be, they do not have the records of those that went to religious-run boarding schools. And that's a whole other process. They do not fall under the jurisdiction, per se, that the federal government does. So the vestiges, again, back to that, is essentially the theft of land. And when you talk about, uh, in comparison to Canada, when they have initiated this process uh, years before, we're, we're, at, we're at day one, right? Day two. Um, they're years ahead of us 
And part of that reconciliation, I think, has been started to be seen here in this country, and that is return of, of land that our people knew was ours and, and was just taken. Um, that's one form of reconciliation. Uh, an apology is, is a reconciliation for some, but as the saying goes, and I've been hearing this, uh, I'm compiling a feature story um, from various leaders throughout Indian country and actions speak louder than words. And I'm hearing this from Lieutenant Governor Peggy Flanagan from the state of Minnesota, the executive director of the American Indian Movement here in Minneapolis. And it's just a really, it's really interesting to hear all of this. But right now, uh, I, I definitely can acknowledge that um, things that come from the theft of land, uh, what they might mean for us today is American Indian students, for example, as a whole in the educational system, um, we are the least likely to graduate from high school, the least likely to go on to college, to complete college. We are the least likely to be politically represented in any form of government. Uh, we have the lowest life expectancy of any other ethnic group here in the country, according to various reports, including the CDC. Uh, we have the highest representation of children in state foster care systems, particularly in South Dakota. Uh, we have the, the largest number of people who are incarcerated, who have been to prison, who have been, in other words, disenfranchised. Those are some of those like very troubling examples. And, and there's you have to look at the theft of land. You have to look at the, the policies that not only took that land or justified the taking of that land, but also educated or use this form of, of an institution to, to make it okay. Let me ask about, cause I think it, this is an interesting, um, tension, right. Or the, the, what happens after this sort of sharing and acknowledgement, I think is very important, right? Because this report is, is apparently intended to provide a basis for how the U S government will reckon with this history. So step one is, researching and locating potential grave sites and repatriating the remains of children who are buried there. What will follow as the actual reckoning remains a little bit vague? And I, as always, you know, as, as you sort of referenced, I, I worry that we will not get beyond um, the point of either, to, you know, an apology or allowing people to tell their stories. So uh, Assistant uh, Interior Secretary Brian Newland says the report presents the opportunity for us to reorient federal policies to support the revitalization of tribal languages and cultural practices. Interior Secretary Deb Holland announced a road to healing tour of the U.S. that will give survivors the opportunity to share, connect communities with trauma-informed support, and facilitate collection of a permanent oral history. She has promised an all-of-government approach to do all of the above and to honor our obligations to Indigenous communities. And so, of course, there's a lot of focus on sharing, which I know is an important part of reconciliation processes. Some of this stuff about language revitalization is kind of specific, but I am wondering, you know, what would you like to hear more specifically as part of this reckoning? Because, you know, when I hear about revitalizing cultural practices, I'm sorry, I, I think about Oak Flat being sold to Rio Tinto, you know, against the wishes of the um, I, the San Pedro Apache. I forget the, the location exactly. But, you know, so, it, yeah, as you say, land is very connected to this stuff. And if you keep um, 
taking land from people or exploiting land that native communities uh, don't want you to exploit, some of this stuff will be hollow. So I wonder what what concrete next steps would you be really hoping for after we have the acknowledgement and the sort of uh, sharing of these stories? The next concrete steps involve funding, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the one of the things the report revealed was that in order for us to continue this this comprehensive investigation, which is needed clearly in this amount of time in this report, we need more time. We need more resources. Mm-hmm. Um, but so that's you know that's a that's kind of the technical answer. But more concrete, essentially, is. I think a gathering of people who are survivors to have the opportunity to discuss what would be the next step, because I myself, am, I'm not a direct survivor. My mother, like, so I'm first generation. You know, my mother went to boarding school. Wow. This is a very difficult subject for her. Yeah. And so essentially, I think it really all is going to tie back to land. Especially when people realize that the timing of this this process in in associate and we're not even talking about like the theft of the continent. We're talking about theft of land that we retained in our treaties. Yes. Yeah, I think that's important to point out. It's not like it's not like going, oh, the only solution is to for uh, European settlers to leave the United States. We're talking about, yeah, individual uh pieces of land that should have been protected by by treaties that were made with the government. Yes, and that's that's it exactly. So we're not asking, you know, and I can, you know, I don't speak for everyone, but I've never heard anyone really vocally say we want them to go back to Europe because this is not going to happen. But essentially, it is honoring the black and white, and that is the treaties are the supreme law of the land. I think that's going to be a very common thing that a lot of people are going to are going to recommend. And unfortunately, if it's not going to equal land, then it's going to probably equal money. Mm-hmm. Because the monies that were used for the cessation of land were used to fund our own oppression. Mm-hmm. That was another thing that that was revealed in this in this report. So it's it's really um you know, I received a lot of messages yesterday from, from my various colleagues and, and other relatives that say that it's a really heavy day, but it also was very encouraging because now we can go up from here. So a lot of people are very hopeful. In the language you spoke of earlier, of Secretary, Assistant Secretary Newland explaining that we can shift a, a change in our policies or in our approach and that's hopeful right now, but that all depends on who who's in office, um, whether or not these initiatives will, will be carried on and maintained after the next administration. Yeah, you know, th- those those things are very important because those things take a lot of time. They take a lot of a lot of time and a lot of persuasion. And I do want to reflect for just a second or just note for a second how shameful it is that you have to depend or, you know, we have to depend on the goodwill of an administration to actually adhere most of the time to what is the letter of the law when it comes to treaties. You know what I mean? Which goes back to you can't get away. that This is just a really racist application of law, you know, because there should not be it, it should not be a question. Right. In, in a lot of these cases. Darren, 
I want to ask you, because you, you, we've both referenced Canada. Canada has been reckoning with its own residential school program in a formal public way for quite a long time. There has been some disappointment in that process, but they have at least been at it for, for longer than us. And I wonder if we, you know, as you say, we are at the beginning of a similar process. So if we look to Canada, what lessons are there to be learned um, from what Canada and its First Nations have done? And what, uh, what should we, you know, what should we be trying to emulate? What should we be trying to avoid? Sure. So one of the things that Canada was able to accomplish is they were able to actually have a nationwide conversation with survivors, and it took a number of years. So that's, that's one thing it did. Is it was able to bring people together, and yes, it was on a, on a traumatic thing, but the fact of survivors being together and being able to share their stories amongst each other brought some healing. And although the healing came from those who were harmed themselves in many situations, I think that's one thing that, that we can acknowledge. Uh, another was that it continued to pressure the government to keep that particular, the federal government, to keep that particular issue moving forward and something that the country should be taking seriously. So some follow through. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they're, they're it's very complicated. Uh, Canada actually emulated its model from the United States. It didn't operate schools as long as the United States. So it started after and ended before uh, the United States practice had done so. Wow. It's pretty remarkable that in Canada, it's so much more of a conversation than it than it is here, considering it was a, yeah, as you say, a condensed program of ours. It is a, it is incredible to think that this is the first time we have undertaken uh, to to sort of catalog these these horrors and bring them to light and at least pretend that we intend to, uh, you know, ha- have some kind of reckoning for them. Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask, Darren, if we see, I mean, again, laudable that Canada started this process, laudable that, you know, people were willing to engage in it on a national level and, and have these much more visible symbols of it. They have Orange Shirt Day. Um but also when these mass graves were discovered uh, last year, some of the complaints raised were that, hey, as part of the sort of recommendations for, we arrived at through this process, we asked, we asked for a survey of these very areas. We asked for the government to you know, actually start seriously looking and we were put off. So, you know. Uh, these conclusions of this process are only as powerful as uh, actions taken to enact them are. And what I wonder is if if we see similar delays by the United States, right? If we see a uh, if we see a lag between uh, the sort of uh, discussion aspect and the action aspect of this reckoning, what kind of pressure do you think would be the most effective in in getting the government to sort of put its money where its mouth is? I think the I think constant advocating by not only those who represent us in Washington, but those who do on the ground grassroots work is very very important. Media plays a role, but I think that you know I, I might be very optimistic in this statement, but I think that this administration is already have these tricks up their sleeves and they just need us to jump through the hoops so that it's an accepted format the country 
I mean, I hope you're right. I also, I want to ask Darren, what, what if any, what, what's the role for non-native people in this process, right? Is there a particular uh, response that would be the best one? Is there a role in, you know, in responding to the information that we are going to get or promulgating it? Or I, I just wonder, you know, like, of course, you can look on and sort of feel the weight of all of these deaths and feel the weight of this attempt to cut people off from their culture and and kill it. But I wonder what else in, in the moment in 2022, what would what's a what's the response you're looking for from the non-native community? Sure, that is, to, you know, we're all our own best teachers. I would encourage people to follow. And I know that's so promo and marketing, but it's true to follow our native writers, our publications like Indian Country Today, who I don't work for. Native News Online, like what they're doing with boarding schools locally. You could ask museums, libraries. Um, if you really want to go that far, you know, our time is so precious. But you know, if, if these organizations are seeing or hearing requests, they're going to, you know, respond, you know, just like, just like any other market would respond to something like this. Sounds like they want to learn about boarding schools. And it's, it's a really big thing right now. And there are lots of ways to learn more about it. But for, for the sake of time, for the sake of convenience, our, our publications are, are really on top of this and are, and are doing very well. I myself am going to Marquette University to study some of the Catholic Indian boarding school records, which are different than the federal Indian boarding school records. And that's where I'm an alum. So I, I it's kind of interesting how this is coming all full circle. Oh, yeah. I will be interested in hearing what you learn from those records. We're out of time today. That was Darren Thompson of Unicorn Riot and Native News Online. Darren, always great to talk to you. We are going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back in just a second. We're still live in D.C. We're still on Radio Sputnik. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. There's a lot going on today in domestic policy and politics. First, producer prices shot up 11% in April. That's well ahead of the consumer inflation rate of 8.3% that was announced yesterday. Republicans in Congress are talking about investigating Attorney General Merrick Garland because he apparently lied about the FBI investigating parents in Loudoun County, Virginia. He said there was no investigation. It turns out that not only was there an investigation, but it was being done by the FBI's counterterrorism unit. Why? Because some parents were protesting, protesting school mask mandates. The Democrats in the Senate yesterday were unable to pass a bill to statutorily protect abortion rights. Senator Joe, Joe Manchin, the conservative West Virginia Democrat, was the only Democrat to vote no on the bill. A lot of Republicans are angry about Democrats protesting for abortion rights in front of the homes of Supreme Court justices here in the Washington area. Well, now Republicans are protesting in front of Nancy Pelosi's house in San Francisco. So there. And finally, a whale washed up on shore, dead, on my ancestral island of Rhodes, Greece, a couple of days ago. An autopsy revealed that its stomach was completely full of plastic. 
and although it never felt hungry, it starved to death. This is happening to whales and other sea life all around the planet. We're joined by journalist and writer Daniel Lazar, who's going to help steer us on some of these important issues. Welcome back, Dan. Uh, Thanks for having me, John. Always very happy to have you, Dan. Dan, the White House yesterday congratulated itself because inflation fell from 8.5% to 8.3%. They said that it had peaked and that better days were ahead. But today, we see an 11% rise in wholesale prices. The only conclusion that I can draw is that inflation is not going away in the, in the near term. But what do you think about this? Well, I agree totally. I mean, I mean inflation, uh, uh, since it, at first, you know, it, it first began making itself evident uh, in early 2021, does you know, just the virtually the moment that uh, Joe Biden entered office, has per, uh, proved itself to be more persistent and more powerful than all the experts have uh, have wanted us to believe. So, um, so inflation is surging. It seems to be increasing, or at least holding steady, or probably accelerating. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, the Federal Reserve, the Biden administration, are all you know facing a real crunch. I think that's right. Uh, the the whole purpose of interest rate increases is to make it tougher to borrow money and then in turn to spend money. That's supposed to bring down inflation, but it also tends to push economies into recession. Is that what we should expect now? A formal recession just in time for the midterm elections? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. I believe so. Yes, I think the economy will slow down. I mean, listen, the, the interest rates are already having a dramatic effect. Uh, I mean, I mean, what's, yeah. what we're seeing with cryptocurrency is amazing. Oh, it's killing it! Uh, h- hundreds of billions of dollars wiped off, you know, and, and value wiped out uh, in a flash. It reminds me of Enron back in you know in the early aughts, um, and uh, and um, and the, you know and uh, Silicon Valley is taking a huge hit. A lot of these uh, startups, which seemed very dubious. Or uh, propelled along by with borrowed money are now just like you know just just like you know just evaporating really, uh, and I think we're you know and, and home sales are, are are taking a hit, so I think we're we're sort of already seeing a lot of the froth uh, being blown off, but the froth is really really huge, um, and the uh, and the Fed. You know, has no choice but to try to clean house, you know, and get rid of all this, you know, this all this foam, all yeah. this bubble and foam, uh, in order to sort of, you know, pare the economy back. But yes, you're right. I mean, I mean that means that that individuals, workers will be laid off. The economy will slow down. Yes. Ordinary people will take a hit. There's no question about it. But for so much of this boom over the last 12 years, this entirely artificial boom, we saw. You know, all this Federal Reserve stimulus serving to inflate at financial asset values and real estate values with little of the benefit filtering down to the working class. And, and now that, that inflation is spreading to ordinary commodities, uh, the Fed is left with no choice but to, uh, to take action. I just want to jump in here talking about blowing off the froth John and I were talking earlier in the show, of course, about the crypto crash. We talked about it yesterday. Uh, But there's a very interesting example of what exactly that means by a senior writer at Gizmodo who notes, if you invested $100 in Luna one month ago, the fourth, fourth most popular cryptocurrency one month ago, 
this was this was of a couple hours ago. You would now have uh, four cents. Oh, wait, now it's three cents. Oh, wait, it just went to two cents. Three hours ago, it was a penny. And now it is officially worth less than a penny. And this oh is a God. crypto token that exists in the same um, ecosystem. It has the same protocol as a stable coin that is supposed uh-huh. to be linked to the U.S. dollar. And I don't understand this very well, but I guess the idea is Luno is a crypto. Luna is a cryptocurrency that you could sort of mint or burn according to the stable coins value to kind of help keep I don't really understand how it works but basically it was the wow. fourth most popular currency to invest in one month ago it is now worth less than a cent and is delisted from crypto trading platforms delisted. like so it has I mean unless something changes it has just gone poof it's gone it has no more value wow uh, do, do, with do you all remember your Enron? actual dollar money you know do you, do you remember Enron in the early in the early uh in the early aughts Oh my uh, gosh! Yeah. Yes. I mean, I mean, it was, it was one of the hottest companies in the country, and within a matter of days, they were selling the you know selling the the office furniture off. Yeah, you know, I had dinner that, with that was, that was the only asset. I had dinner with Sharon Watkins, uh, the the Enron whistleblower, um, on uh, Saturday night, and um, a, a, a mutual friend of ours gave her goldman sachs write-up on enron from two weeks before it went bust and they were gushing in their in their their demand that people put as much money as they possibly could into enron because it was so well managed and it was just going for this the stars. This is just all people writing about their friends, right? Yeah. Ultimately, they're sort of friends and the people they to. stand to benefit from. Oh, yeah. Oh, hey, write about. Oh, my boss is really great. Yeah. yeah. Give him lots of money and then maybe I'll get some. <laughs> Crazy. Well, you know, I, you know, Paul Krugman was one of the cheerleaders for Enron. Oh, yes, he was. <laughs> yeah. Yes, he was. <laughs> yep. Absolutely but now, right. But, but, but now those happy days are back again. We're seeing, we're seeing uh, all these cryptocurrencies just like just bottom out, evaporate. I mean, it's it's really astonishing. Yeah. So so in that sense, I think that you know that, that justice is being done. I mean, that the capitalist cycle is turning. Uh, you know, the um the things are tightening up. All the these fly by night crazy schemes that never made any sense at all. You know, are finally just being like you know just just tossed by the wayside, being exposed for the the hollow frauds they really yeah. are. Uh, and uh, the idea is to somehow pair the economy back to its basics, but that'll be at a tremendous cost uh, to everyone from the average worker in the street to poor Joe Biden, who's going to suffer yeah. uh, immense consequences in November. I firmly believe. I, I was reading uh, Barron's uh, yesterday, which is a publication of um, of the Dow Jones. And it said that the spread between short-term bonds, which are, what, six months or less maturity, and long-term bonds, which are 30 years maturity, uh, maturity uh, the spread is the narrowest that it's been in 168 years. So there's just, wow. there's just nowhere to put your money. I mean, you can put it in short-term bonds, which is great, and then you're going to get half of a percent, which is better than the two-tenths of one percent that we're getting in savings accounts. But it's not you can't grow an economy like that. Anyway, okay. I, I, I certainly <laughs> agree. The economy is heading for a, a giant crunch, and, the, and, the, and for Democrats, the consequences will be just dreadful.
I I have to agree. I just don't see any other way out of it. Um, and speaking of uh, Democrats in trouble, let's let's talk for a second about um, about Merrick Garland. A year ago, we saw news reports that the FBI was investigating parents in suburban Loudoun County, Virginia, who had spoken out against mask mandates at school board meetings. And I'll tell you where we saw this. We saw it on Fox News. Right. They were the only ones reporting it, jumping up and down. The FBI is investigating parents. And then MSNBC and CNN said, don't be ridiculous. The FBI's not investing parents who just go before the school board and say that they don't want their kids to wear masks. Well, you know what? Yeah, they were. And not only was the FBI investigating these parents, it was the the FBI's counterterrorism unit. That was investigating them. Well, the reason why this is in the news today is that Merrick Garland had told a congressional committee that there was no investigation. And it turns out that there was. So he lied before Congress. Now, I went back to look to see if he had been sworn in before taking uh, his seat at this committee hearing. And it, I couldn't find anything to say that that he had been sworn in. When I was working on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee staff, we generally didn't swear in witnesses because it's supposed to be just a friendly conversation, right? We're all friends here. It's the Democrats that control the committee and Merrick Garland's a Democrat. So he may not have committed perjury, but well, still, right? This is bad, still, right? I would, I would argue that someone of, 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 Gar, of a Garland's stature and, and experience should – know that when he's testifying before Congress, whether or not he goes through the through the formality of, of taking an oath, that he is there to tell the truth. Exactly. The expectation is he will tell the truth. Um, and I think that uh, it's very hard to imagine him getting off on the basis of a technicality. Uh, so um, and that's all it is, I think. So well, if, there's got to be some lie, kind of political fallout at, at the very least, don't you think? Oh, of course. Of course. I mean, yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, executive branch, uh, you know, members of the executive branch shouldn't lie to the legislature. That is unconstitutional. It prevents the legislature from doing its job. Um, and uh, and that is a very serious uh, constitutional uh, slash democratic small d uh, infraction. And 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 yeah, it should not be tolerated for a second. I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, it's possible there's things, you know, it's possible things are not the way, not the way they seem. Republicans may be exaggerating. I don't know. I don't know. But nonetheless, the principle to me is quite clear. Executive branch officials can't lie to Congress. If they did, no. Congress would essentially be an accessory to its yes. own self-demolition. Absolutely right. Uh, the Senate yesterday could not pass a measure to protect abortion rights at the federal level. The vote was 49 to 51, with Joe Manchin joining all 50 Republicans and voting no. Literally nobody in America thought this bill would pass. But it, it leads to several issues. First, why haven't the Democrats done anything to protect abortion rights over the past 50 years, especially when they had 60 senators? And could break a filibuster in 2009. Second, is there anything that the Democrats can do to protect abortion rights if, as we all expect, the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade 
And I think I know what your answer is going to be. Well, the answer to the first is that is that Democrats have never been united on the question of uh, of um, abortion. Yeah. And the reason we know that is there was a certain senator who was actually anti-abortion virtually virtually his entire career, who is now in the Oval Office. That is Joe Indeed. Biden. And and um and and Democrats and even if they had sixty votes, it's unclear if they would have gotten sixty votes on, like, on an abortion. Uh, a pro-abortion me- uh, measure, um, and secondly, they were they were content to leave it, leave this hot potato in the hands of the courts, and and that's the way American politics have worked for literally the last seventy years. Uh, I mean, it goes back to the late nineteen forties, where the uh, where Congress, both parties, were you know were happy to leave the the uh, segregation issue alone, uh, in the belief that the Supreme Court would take care of it. So what we've seen is an as a as a, 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 a growing in deference a deference a growing willingness in the part of the legislative uh, branch to to put these hot potatoes in the hands of the, of the judiciary so that it is freed of responsibility. So that's what we saw with you know with with, with Roe, where the you know the Democrats were happy to leave it in the hands of the court, defending the court. Hoping the court would, would no rulings would go its way, as they did for a time, uh, but now the Democrats are completely, you know, s- stuck. Now that the strategy has uh, has has failed, you know, I mean, uh, the, all these these I read the New York Times how all these pundits believe it's going to be this is going to work out to the benefit of the Democrats in November. I disagree. I mean, I think this shows a colossal failure and weakness on the part of the Democrats. Um, and I think I think it's another reason why I think they will re- they're really facing disaster uh, this fall. Well, n- not to get too far off the subject, but yeah, you look at the you look at the numbers, and and the numbers just aren't there for the Democrats to to turn this around. I I said last week when this abortion thing uh, first leaked that I thought this was going to be a gift to the Democrats. And, um, and I've been following the polls very, very closely, right? It's literally the first thing I do when I get up in the morning is I Google the latest polls. And we've had enough time now for polls to have been taken post leak, Supreme Court leak. And there's literally no change in the polls. Nothing. You know, you look at these close races in places like Georgia and Wisconsin and Nevada and New Hampshire. There's literally no difference. Yeah. So. And honestly, if it if if you are looking at a situation where this is going to, at least for some time, be kicked back to the states, the focus yeah. is going to be it should be on state legislatures on exactly. and to hell with Congress because they haven't done anything. Yeah, it's hard. I don't know. I really don't know how much longer you can continue to tell people if we just get enough, you know, if you just vote for us enough, if we get enough seats, then we can do this thing yeah. uh, that you want to yeah. do. And when, and when they that just, just consistently haven't. See, yeah. this is this is why the Republicans have been so much better than the Democrats politically at targeting the races that needed to be targeted. I remember George McGovern saying in 1992 that the Democrats were making a big mistake by not targeting local uh, offices and state legislatures. This is something that James Carville wanted to do. Instead, the the DNC wanted to spend the money on the national level, mm. and they did. And, and the Republicans spent locally. 
And look what happened. And who did they spend a ton of money on the, on the national level? I mean, look, maybe I'm I, maybe my memory is selective, but I just the amount of money they poured into Amy McGrath. In, oh my God! I forgot all about Kentucky Amy to make sure yeah. that Charles Booker, the more progressive candidate, didn't, didn't get anywhere. Win. That's uh-huh. really unconscionable. And then she got clobbered. Yeah, their efforts to uh, Nina Turner, right? Mm-hmm. The it's just like wh- where they put their money is to make sure progressive candidates don't win in national races. And again, That's like, right. can, can I try to put? But in, please do. <laughs> just to be to be fair to the poor Democrats, I mean, just just to, you know, I, I mean, I'm happy to beat up on the Democrats because they deserve it so badly. But um, but just to be fair, I mean, the the, the entire system is really trending in a Republican direction. Yeah, I mean, the um, you know, I, I've been looking very carefully into this into this rogue. I, I actually actually read the Alito the Alito opinion. Um, uh, first of all, four of the five. Justices who, who who signed the opinion were appointed by unelected judges, uh, unelected presidents, either W or Trump. Number two, um, they were four of the five were also approved, uh, confirmed by Senate margins by senators, Senate margins that represented a minority of American citizens. Oh, without a doubt. So, so this is a doubly minoritarian opinion. Now, and that said, I mean, I, I read the Alito opinion, and actually, in a strange way, in a strange upside-down ironic way, I think he's right. I mean, there clearly is no right of privacy, right, in the uh, in the Constitution. In the Constitution. I mean, I mean it, it'd be absurd to think that a two hundred and thirty-five year old uh, document would contain a right of privacy. As that term is understood in modern times, obviously, um, and and Alito is also correct that you know that the question of abortion, which involves you know a conflict between the rights of the mother and the rights of the unborn child, these are questions that are really legislative in nature, yes. not judicial. He's yes. quite correct. I know I don't believe it, I don't believe it should be kicked to the states. I think the federal government should should deal with this issue. But you know, but Congress is so is so dysfunctional, and the and the Senate is so unre, unrepresentative that it really is incapable of doing it. But um, in a certain sense, Alito is correct. So the Democrats are completely stuck. And and then finally, you know, the the two most senior conservatives on the bench are. Uh, are Alito and uh, and Thomas, and, and Thomas. they are aged uh, seventy two and seventy three, which means that barring some, you know, barring Clarence Thomas, you know, you know, tripping in front of a speeding bus, it means that they will go on handing down these decisions for sure. another decade, sure, at least, sure, and there will be nothing that Democrats can do. No, so this 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 pattern, this eighty year old pattern of deference to the Supreme Court has completely backfired where the Democrats are, are checkmated and, and, uh, and, you know, and the, and the, 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 this, this, this decision really is a disaster because a lot of, lot else is at stake. You know, I mean, uh, you know, uh, gay rights rulings, uh, Griswold yes. about contraception, yes. loving versus Virginia on the, on interracial marriage. I mean, these things are now shown to rest on a right of privacy yes. that the majority of the Supreme Court says doesn't exist. That is you know, absolutely it, right. It really is kind of Enron-esque, right? I mean, in, in a certain sense, the whole foundation for these 
these uh, these advances is found to be is found to be non-existent, and the Democrats can can't change that. Can I ask you something, Dan? Because I think it's true. And I also think there is a tendency to kind of forget when you, you know, it's like a bully is punching you in the face and the Democrats stands in front of you and says, no, I'm not going to let him do that. And then they keep ducking. And eventually you get madder at the person who's not defending you than the person who is actually the aggressor. But my actual question is, uh, to your point that Democrats are are completely stuck uh, as a result of long term processes that they can't do anything in the short term to change. How much responsibility do they bear for uh, for having recognized, I guess, the, the trap that was being built around them? Do you, do you, you know, were, were they sleeping on the job for a decade or was, were they you know, was this inexorable? I, I guess it's kind of the latter. I mean, we had this we had this document, which is like 235 years old. It's it's completely unchangeable. Uh, it's utterly at odds with the needs of modern society. Now, the Democrats thought they, you know, and we're talking about like cultural attitudes, longstanding. But the Democrats thought that somehow the Supreme Court would take this document and somehow transform it magically into a charter of modern liberties. You know, so it would grant everything that they wanted: abortion rights, gay rights, you know, uh, you know, uh, interracial marriage. I mean, all these things. I'm, I'm sure you too support as much as I do. Um, but the, uh, but that that int- the intellectual foundations for that shift. Uh, were were more and more tenuous. So as a result, the uh, now that we have the, the Supreme Court in the hands of the ultra right, and and one might say that is kind of normal because that's the way the Supreme Court almost always was throughout its its you know its 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 long history. Um, now, so now that things have gone back to to normal, the Democrats are left high and dry, and the entire system is going screaming to the right. So. Uh, so things are uh, things are really in a bad state for the Democrats, and I must say, in general, for democratic rights, small d, uh, as well. I want to ask you uh, something about protests too. We've seen a lot of protests over the past couple of years in front of the homes of prominent people, uh, members of Congress, CIA directors, Supreme Court justices, even Tucker Carlson. Uh, Republicans complain that this violates an unwritten rule of good manners, that people's houses should be off limits. And in fact, the the Republican governor of Virginia, Glenn Youngkin, tweeted day before yesterday that uh, well, he was reminding people that it's actually a felony in Virginia to uh, to carry out a protest in front of somebody's home if they're an elected official uh, now. That's an unconstitutional law. It's constitutionally protected free speech, even if it's sort of, let's call it bad form. Um, Now Republicans are protesting in front of Nancy Pelosi's house, which made me chuckle this morning when I read it. Is this the future? Have we moved into a new realm of protest or or is this a particularly angry period right now? And do you think, Dan, that, that protesting at somebody's house actually accomplishes anything? No, I mean, I must say, um, I, I'm, I, I view it with a scans. I don't really like it very much. Yeah, it strikes I, me I, as, I don't either. As, uh, it's, 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 it's distasteful. Uh, it seems to be the wave of the future because politics are getting to be like, you no know, more and more, you know, nastier and na- nastier and nastier and more and more personal. Uh, there's a there's a funny clip uh, making its way uh, through YouTube. Uh, 
apparently Candace Owen, the right wing uh, uh, black journalist, uh, showed up with a film crew outside of Patrice Collor's uh, house in uh, in Los Angeles. Just wanted to ask a few questions. Knocked on her on her uh, you know rang her doorbell, uh, and uh, and Patrice Collor's is now claiming harassment. Uh, Patrice, uh, Patrice Colors, by the way, is the as uh, a founder of Black Lives Matter, which is uh, now uh, is now raising eyebrows because it, it showed the, the the group has turns out to in, to have invested many of many of its proceeds in pricey real estate, including the home that Patrice Colors is, uh, is now living in. So uh, so there's a scandal brewing there, but you know, but, but she was taking her outrage at being quote unquote harassed by Candace Bergen and making a tearful, you know, uh, 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 video that's now on that's now on YouTube and is getting a lot of responses. I, I mean, in general, I don't I think that people I, I don't like the personal nature of these attacks, but these seem to be uh, seem to be growing, and we should have thick skins. Yeah. Right. I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, the, I mean, democracy is a democracy is going to be a rough process. Uh, you know, people yell at one another. People get in each other's faces. You know, mm-hmm. they, they debate strenuously. Um, and we can't be you know, we, we just can't. We're not shrinking violence. I mean, and also like, this is for for anyone who can have a baby. This is a huge deal. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. It's not like people are upset over over nothing. Yes, yes, it is a it is a huge deal. Yeah. Uh, I think it's um, I think American the American political system is incapable of dealing with mm-hmm. <laughs> anything 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 approaching a constructive democratic manner. But yeah, it is yeah. a it is a, a huge deal, and uh, and we've got to we've got to grow thick skins. Yeah, you know we can't have a you can't have a trigger warning every you know every time someone wants to say something that that you know. At odds with your own with your own opinions. I mean, this is ridiculous. Yeah, I will say that politics has been at least as nasty as this in in the past, right? In in at the beginning of the the founding of the republic, you know, all the way through the nineteenth century, there are a couple of fun. In the seventies, blowing people up. Yeah, right. <laughs> we're blowing right. people up. At least up. a few. You know, um, yeah. In the uh, in the seventeen nineties, they were putting a uh, Jeffersonian uh, newspaper editors in jail. Exactly. I, in fact, I was going to mention that I was going to mention uh, the the race between uh, uh, this guy, Blaine, the senator from Maine who lived at DuPont Circle oh, yeah. and uh, Grover Cleveland, where they actually published a song. There was a rumor that Grover Cleveland had an illegitimate child and they actually published a song and made sheet music for it called Ma, Ma, Where's My Pa? And then go on to the White House. Ha ha ha. ha. <laughs> right. After you won, gone to the White House. Ha ha ha. George Smathers, who became a senator, for, a Democratic senator from Florida, uh, defeated uh, Claude Pepper, who was running. He had been elected in 1938 and was running for reelection in 1950. And Smathers gave a speech in which uh, he said that that Pepper was out of touch with Florida values because his sister was an acknowledged thespian in New York City. And people said, oh, my God, she's a thespian. And he lost the primary. <laughs> so, you know, this, that's the system we have. Everybody's I do nasty. wonder on the, on the topic of personal protest. I know I'm dragging this out. I just think like I understand. I mean, I do think it does. You know, on one hand, if you worry that people are going to show up at your house and, and you know, f- sort of physically intimidate you, 
uh, as a yeah. result of you doing something that you believe in, you know, that is that that's not great. But again, as you say, like we're talking about, you know, the, the Democrats being being stuck in this process. Yeah. I mean, so is the, the country that is sort of held hostage by minority rule. And so it is hard to say, yeah, you listen, there's not really anything you can do about it. And you also can't ex- you can only express your anger in a couple of different ways. You know what I mean? Like, I really get I really yeah. get hung up on telling people they actually have to be polite and go get illegal abortions, you know? Right. right. And, you know, and, and, and physical intimidation. I mean, you know, that's going pretty far. Well, I guess I mean, like a crowd I, of I, I, people, I don't know, a crowd of people is kind of un- under the circumstances. No, no, a little. But it shouldn't be. But if people want to march outside a home, wave, waving signs and shouting slogans and maybe even saying a, and I'm making unpleasant remarks about Nancy yeah. Pelosi, that is their right. Yeah. I mean, if, if she wants to, if she wants, you know, to, to, to take a walk on, they, 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 they can't beat her up. They can't throw stuff at her house. No. They can't trample her lawn. That's going too far, obviously. But, you know, but carrying signs, uh, chanting slogans, uh, you know, that's to me, that's totally fair. I hate to say that we're out of time, Mm -hmm. but uh, but we're out of time. We were happy to be joined by Daniel Lazar. He's a journalist and writer. Dan, where can people find more of your work? I'm writing these days for a publication called Weekly Worker dot co dot UK. Excellent. So and I have have an article in the current issue about the uh, the the road, the um, the uh, Alito opinion. Oh, so, outstanding. Uh, great. Weeklyworker.co.uk. You're listening to Political yes. Misfits. We'll take a short break and come back with our final guest. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, and we are about to get uh, go a little more in depth once more on the ever fascinating, ever evolving U.S.-Saudi relationship. I'd say perhaps evolving on the Saudi mm-hmm. side, maybe not so much on the U.S. side. Uh, we are going to talk about how the current economic tensions and especially inflation in the United States, high gasoline prices. We're going to talk about what these tensions are doing for Saudi Arabia and to the political relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia and also between, you know, the the U.S. and Gulf states in general. But before we bring on our next guest, John, I thought you would be tickled to know that your friend Greg Norman... The man you admire I so much. I tweeted about this last J- night. Oh, yeah. Go- golfer Greg Norman. Uh, he had some things to say about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Do you, do you remember what they were? Yeah. He said that, uh, that's, you know, people make mistakes sometimes. Right. Right. And uh, it's 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 time for us to move on. Speaking at a, he was speaking at a promotional event in the UK for a golf tournament that Saudi Arabia is backing. And they tried to ask him questions about yep. Khashoggi. And he said, look, uh, I tweeted, don't you hate when you kill someone, chop them up and then dispose of your of their body? And then you think, oh, maybe I shouldn't have done that. I mean, honestly, mistakes like killing, killing a bunch of civilians with the bomb you've dropped is terrible. That is more understanding as a mistake than luring someone to an embassy, luring someone to an embassy or consulate (laughs) in another country. And then, yeah, murdering him and trying to cover it up for a long time. (sighs) 
Well, with that comic interlude done, uh, yeah, we're going to get back to a much more serious conversation about these relationships with our guest, Ali Al-Ahmed. He's a Saudi scholar and an expert on Saudi political affairs. Thank you for joining us, Ali. Thank you for having me. I want to talk first about uh, Saudi Aramco. Yesterday, with Apple sliding along with all U.S. other tech stocks, uh, other U.S. tech stocks, the Saudi national oil company, Saudi Aramco, overtook Apple as the world's most valuable company, which is remarkable for a number of reasons. And one, look, again, I'm not naive. I understand what what is happening now. But are we supposed to be worried about the climate? You know, I mean, COP26 was last year. Wasn't that supposed to be a turning point where nations start working together and we really put the pedal to the metal when it comes to climate change? Or at least we were supposed to be, you know, doing kinder, gentler extraction. And now a fossil fuel company run by one of the most repressive regimes in the world is the top of the heap of the entire planet. It is an interesting contrast in what we say we want to do and what we actually value. Uh, but also, Ali, Aramco had a pretty disappointing IPO back in 2019, and maybe that's just because expectations were so high. Um, but it apparently doubled its profits from 2020 to 2021, and its stock is up 27% so far this year. And so I wonder if uh, the, the rise of Aramco should tell us something, or if this is just like jockeying at the top and Apple will be back ahead of it by the end of next week i don't think apple will will uh will uh, you will pull ahead in terms in reality as, as a person who grew up uh, basically amidst aramco uh, installations the the value that aramco has outweighs what uh, apple can you know uh, can you know ever reach the, the problem is of course you know skewed economics and uh, uh, with U.S. Uh, government help, uh, Apple still, you know, reigns as a leading company. If, if the Chinese were allowed to compete fairly, I think Apple will not be here, uh, uh, will not be mentioned even in our conversation. Mm-hmm. Aramco has a greater value than even the Saudis um, had valued it at like 1.5. Uh, like I said, because I'm from the area, my master's in finance and valuation and stuff like that. So... The Aramco value, uh, as is, it is the largest uh, uh, company, or the most valuable company in the world, and it's not just today. It's been like this for decades. The problem has been it's not a company that's listed here, not a company that's owned by an American interest, so it does not get that sort of high valuation like an Apple company would. And But it, it's important to see that there is a shift in terms of economics, and I think the U.S. policy caused caused this, because the U.S. was focused on sort of you know establishing and spending money on military bases around the world, where the others like China was uh, was establishing economic bases, uh, you know, uh, if you'd like to put it that way, and expanding its trade and and and, and profits and and uh, and uh, uh, you know a financial purse, and the U.S. has not done that so far. It's still focused on one uh, part of the world, which is military, military, military. And I think that has caused the U.S. a lot. Aramco uh, uh, was born to an American sort of uh, 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 plan or uh, adventure in, in the 30s. Uh, uh, and, uh, in, and the Americans benefited greatly from that company, uh, 
reaped like uh, insane profits and uh, you know exaggerated profits. Also, they built this company. Uh, they helped build it with the locals, and uh, now it's becoming. Uh, it's like almost the story of how the British uh, Empire once ruled uh, half the world, and then to, start to only to see its colonies do better economically. And I think we are seeing some of that here. Hmm. And then, you know, in light of that, does this valuation do something for how the Saudi government perceives itself uh, politically and perceives its political role in the world? Of course. I mean, this is good news for for Mohammed bin Salman. He's going to say, see, I told you I've been doing great. You know, here I have the best thing. They're going to run this many, many stories about it. You know, I'm not sure they're going to use my statements. But the idea, this is the truth. You know, uh, the truth is the company is valuable. It's been valuable for a long time. And even when they had the... the, uh, they they trying to have this this uh, sh- sh- you know sell part of its uh, of the of the company in shares they undervalued it and it still didn't get uh, uh, because you know the stock market is all about feelings and mm. sometimes animosity so I think that's why they didn't have a good IPO uh, but I think the company will do pretty well giving the the, the crisis in. In, uh, in Ukraine with the Russians and the sort of the need, the growing need uh, of, of energy, uh, notwithstanding this sort of uh, useless, uh, uh, you know, environment uh, uh, and climate uh, conferences because, you know, people don't really uh, do, do what they say they will do. Uh, you know, only a few countries do that. Yeah, there seems to be no intention on the part of a, a lot of the people there. Um, I also wanted to get your thoughts on this uh, NOPEC bill that has been revived in the U.S. Senate. A, a Senate committee passed a version of this bill. It has not yet gone to the full Senate. It hasn't passed the House. And, you know, the White House has said it is concerned about unintended consequences, which is perhaps uh, quite correct. But this NOPEC bill would give the U.S. Attorney General the ability to sue OPEC or its members or members of OPEC Plus in U.S. federal court. It is not clear how a federal court could enforce U.S. judicial antitrust decisions against a foreign nation. Uh, you know, again, I don't know how they are going to collect Um and, you know, the, the bill hasn't really gone anywhere and probably won't go anywhere, as it seems like the U.S. Congress has been kind of raising bills like these periodically for years now. But that hasn't stopped the energy ministers of Saudi Arabia and the UAE, uh, when asked about it, from saying, try it. Uh, but then we might not be able to stop uh, fluctuations in the market that would make oil prices go up two or three hundred percent, which is, I think, a pretty unsubtle way of, uh, you know, saying mess around and find out. And so I wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, what why does the U.S. Congress even go to this trouble of of trying to enact a bill that can't possibly be enforced? And also, yeah, why 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 would we go to this trouble? And also, what do you make of the response by these energy ministers? Look, I think the people in the Senate are still living sort of in a in a different world because, uh, uh, and maybe even in the State Department, because you know typically the U.S. government uh, approach is uh, to to threaten a certain uh, 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 you know government with something, you know, kind of agree with some Senate leaders to to discuss a list as uh, on a bill. I'm sorry. Or, or have a hearing or something. And I don't think it works anymore uh, because 
the threat of having uh, your uh, assets frozen uh, uh, because you are not, uh, you know, towing the line for the Americans, it does not encourage these countries to be American allies. Find other ways. Uh, we just saw uh, yesterday the Europeans now are forced. There's like 15 or 14 countries that started, or banks, I'm sorry, that uh, 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 opened uh, or in the process of opening accounts in Rupel to pay the Russians for their oil and gas. And sort of uh, this aggressive approach with those countries will lead them to kind of, you know, move toward China or sell more to more China because there is no threat of, uh, you know, expropriating your your uh, your national treasures, just like what happened when Biden took away uh, uh, everything that Afghan people own, currency, $14 billion. And you say the courts, you know, Biden did it without a court decision. And it just, uh, and nobody uh, raised a finger. And these people are starving in Afghanistan, millions of them. And uh, I mean, just to, uh, uh, because he could, he did. So I think that the, the fear is that the Saudis and other oil producing countries will shy away from the American market because uh, it is uh, an unsafe anymore. So I, I think it's not, go- nothing is, like you said, it's nothing is going to happen uh, 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 because it will create a massive, massive departure of, uh, of foreign capitals from U.S. markets. Um, it's no longer safe, I think. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point when you say that members of Congress are living in a, in a, in a past world, right? When the threat of a U.S. scolding meant, you know, meant a lot more and the dollar was maybe a lot more dominant. And I wonder if actually, ironically, this is sort of just showing how the U.S. is has has less pressure that it can actually apply to OPEC, right? Because right now, you know, the the US is saying, "Hey, you're missing you're missing your production quotas." I guess OPEC was more than 2.5 million barrels a day in April short of production quotas it has said. Brent oil is at more than $100 a barrel earlier this week. OPEC leaders are saying, "Hey, we're doing our best." But I I wonder if what what is underway, as you say, in Europe with banks trading for Russian gas and oil in rubles and uh, Russia and China uh, agreeing and uh, Russian conversation with India on, uh, you know, trading in currencies other than the dollar. If this is sort of having a backlash and the U.S. has even less uh, leverage against, you know, some entities that it used to be able to exert some pressure on through its dollar dominance. Absolutely. I think uh, uh, those people who think that uh, uh, they can bully other countries in terms of of getting them uh, uh, to accept whatever the U.S. wants or what the administration wants has has really been, uh, it has had a negative uh, reaction because now Russia is, you know, is, is reaping these benefits. The reason that the uh, the Saudis and the Emirati part in part are moving uh, closer or standing somewhat with the Russia, you know, make a great increasing their cooperation with the Chinese and non-U.S. Uh, or non-U.S. Uh, allied uh, major powers is because of this sort of you know look at Venezuela for example mm-hmm. the, the the British took away all the the money and the U.S. and Canada, Canada conspired. And took the the entire uh, 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 Venezuelan national oil companies, mm-hmm. at U.S. 
it's like this is like highway robbery. This is not how states should should you know. You are a superpower. Don't behave like you're some kind of a mercenary because it's going to. Uh, it it just takes time before people just say f you and then we don't want to be. Uh, we 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 refuse to do any business with you. And that's why when now the U.S. got stuck with the oil prices going up, they went to uh, Venezuela and what happened? They told them you know. Thank you, but no, we need the money. But you know, we yeah. you you know, come to us when when you have for respect for us. I think that should change in, in American thinking for America's uh, 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 own interest. It, it yeah have sort of a different policy. Yeah, I, I want to talk about sort of America's. Uh the the soft power that it has or the, the power that it has that aren't uh, it's, you know, threatening to either invade you or uh, change your government through uh, some level of interference. Because this brings us to the, the relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. It, it is very perplexing to me. We have this, you know, oil for security relationship. But what we have seen recently is Saudi Arabia being much more willing to exercise uh, some of the power that it has through its, uh, you know, through OPEC, through its uh, oil reserves and the U.S. really seeming like it doesn't know how to negotiate from a position of strength when it can't threaten regime change and it can't threaten a military invasion. And John and I were talking about this before the show. I was saying, what what is it that the U.S. is so so afraid to jeopardize? Right. Because I, I am very surprised it. You know, the, the United States has continued to supply uh, intelligence and, and weapons for Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen for as long as it did. We don't have a really I mean, I, yeah, I guess it is part of our um, continued effort to uh, keep Iran from getting much influence in the region. But it's not like we have a huge ideological commitment to that. And it's incredibly unpopular at home. Why have we been so reluctant to stop doing that, for example? And John had said, well, you know. Is it they're just Saudi Arabia is a huge consumer of our arms, you know, and Saudi Arabia is uh, a partner. Maybe that's a euphemism in in our war on terror. And I wonder, is that it? Like, have we are we so concerned about arms sales and so concerned about losing Saudi Arabia's goodwill when it comes to, you know, trying to control uh, Al Qaeda and and ISIS that we have found ourselves really with with no levers anymore? I think that, that Al Qaeda and ISIS is just really uh, just an excuse. Uh, sometimes even self self uh, sort of generated because you know you need a you need an excuse uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, to intervene sometimes and a cover. And I think the uh, the Al Qaeda and and ISIS uh, you you cannot link them to the Russians or the Iranians or the American rivals. Easily link them to America's uh, allies and protected states. From Saudi Arabia and others, so uh, and uh, and Jordan and, and you know and, and other countries that that have uh, funded and uh, allowed these uh, organizations to uh, to flourish and to be able to uh, uh, wreak havoc on Muslims mostly. Mm-hmm. And uh, and but the U.S. benefited from the, from the fact that they uh, you know the U.S. has uh, used it as a you know an excuse that nobody can. Uh, in sort of oh don't well, don't go after Al Qaeda and this is uh, most Americans including you think this is a, a real threat mm-hmm. and it's an excuse for to sell arms to the Saudis and and to help the Jordanian dictator uh, who is meeting uh, Biden tomorrow mm-hmm. White House and others 
But in the reality is uh, uh, the U.S. Fal- faltered when instead of going uh, like, I, you know, I can call it even the Chinese model, where engaged with nations, including bad governments, and, uh, you know, build these countries and benefit, get, get paid for it, and uh, things will be better for you and for them, making people happy building uh, societies, uh, capacity, economic capacity and exchange and doing business is it's much better for those countries and for the, for the Americans. And that gives them that soft power they're looking for. It would have made oil cheaper uh, and uh, relations between the Saudis and the Americans much easier and less con- you know, contentious if if this was the American original ideas when they came, you know, looking for oil and they helped build this company, could build the entire country, not for free. You know, would they work like the Chinese are not doing this for free? They're getting paid for building the ports and the roads and, and the high speed rail and, and, and making, you know, great, great profits. And the U.S. Should, should follow that model. Unfortunately, I think there is a problem here. It's a cultural problem. Uh, and the relationship with Saudi Arabia right now is hinged uh, on priority that is uh, ties with Israel and the Saudis have given their commitment that they will do it, but it, it will take time. And I think this is what's stopping the uh, the Americans from going sort of nuclear on, on, on Saudi Arabia because the Saudi policy has hurt the American economy mm-hmm. and Saudi Arabia is practicing uh, it's not alone, obviously. Saudi Arabia is not alone, but uh, Saudi Arabia is becoming more independent. And the position that MBS finds himself, he has the upper hand so far in this relationship. Uh, but because there are people in this administration who think uh, the number one priority is to uh, create a relationship between Saudi Arabia and Israel, and that is the most important. The rest do not matter. And I think that's why we are here and we're talking about this. And that's why you are paying and I'm paying like nearly $5 a a gallon for gas. Mm -hmm. And do you think we'll even get that? Do you think we'll get that, you know, within a Biden presidency, we will see a a relationship between Saudi Arabia and Israel? I can tell you, uh, I call it, uh, uh, I'm, I'm not talking about the relationship with Israel because I think, it will happen eventually, but I don't think it's going to happen during the uh, Biden administration. But what I know with uh, sort of a mix of uh, experience and uh, in sort of intelligence, if you can call it that way, that Biden and, and MBS will meet this summer. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. OK. All right. That'll be interesting. Well, we'll get to see if that comes to pass pretty soon. That was author and Saudi Arabia scholar Ali Al-Ahmed. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Ali. Thank you. Bye. We, are, we have a few last headlines to slide in before we go. One uh, dear to my heart right now, John, as someone who is considering going somewhere, U.S. airline bookings dropped 17 percent last month as flights got even more expensive. See, I just don't I just don't understand it. You know, uh, Anyway, where do you even begin with the price of flights? It's wild. And of course, some of it is going to be based on the, the, price, of, the price of oil, right? And the, yeah, and the price of sure. fuel. But I don't know. I mean, it's also... I feel gouged. Also, yeah, I feel gouged too. And other people do as well. I, this report in CNBC says um, consumers spent $7.8 billion on domestic tickets in April, which is down 13% from March. So maybe it is possible that if people just keep 
booking fewer and fewer mm-hmm. tickets that something something will shift. Mm-hmm. Although the story also tells me, despite the slowdown, demand for U.S. domestic plane tickets remains above 2019 levels. I will say... Of, I've, of 2019... Oh, no, 2019 was pre-pandemic. Sure. Yeah. I, I've booked two trips recently, one by plane, one by uh, train. And I got a I got a flight to round trip of Washington to Atlanta, back to Washington. I think I paid one hundred and twenty five mm-hmm. cheap, cheap mm-hmm. on Delta. And then I got a I got a train ticket from D.C. to New York, back to D.C. for like the same price, maybe one forty, which is also pretty good for Amtrak. It's usually relatively expensive. Amtrak is. Yeah, Very it's expensive. expensive. It's the reason I never take it. Yeah. Why would you I? You know, the first time I went to New York by train, freshman year of college, 1982, um, it was just before they phased out, before Reagan phased out the train subsidies. And it cost me 10 bucks each way. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, man, 10 bucks. I could go to New York every weekend if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And then Reagan phased out the the Amtrak subsidy. And all of a sudden it's 150 and bucks. I love trains me too be so so many countries have such nice train systems We're the only ones that don't. i know it's so <laughs> stupid it's so dumb it is uh, it is uh we've we have made mistakes john we've made mistakes yes indeed but boy we have awesome missiles and rockets don't we, we? sure i mean i guess we do <laughs> i've never really seen them up close and so i've just been told that they do their jobs well yeah yeah i don't know speaking of missiles and rockets i i mean there's not much to say about this. So the Wall Street Journal having this big um, sort of feature on its front page about Ukraine's road of death, right. uh, which it says a video investigation shows Russians fired on civilians, uh, which is, of course, terrible, right? Under any circumstances, it's terrible. Road of death jumped out to me just yeah. because. The highway of death. We're all just pretending. Yeah, it's like you just either you are go, you are deliberately saying, yeah, OK, remember the time we did it? We'll, yeah. we'll evoke that time that yep, we we're did. We're going to do it again. We did the same thing and just because we don't care. Or it's just you expect no one to have any memory mm-hmm. of the U.S. doing these things. Yes. Except in the name of good. So we right. didn't become the international pariah that we absolutely deserve to be. You know, I was at the CIA, of course, when the highway of death, the day that the highway of death happened. And what it was, was, you know, we had given the Iraqis a a deadline to withdraw from Kuwait. And by God, just before the clock ended, they said, "Okay, we're withdrawing. And we thought, no, we don't want you to withdraw. We want you. We want to kill you. That is like the Iran deal. Yeah. Honestly, Uh wasn't that? Wasn't that? Sorry, I totally interrupted your story. But didn't they? They made a deal in Brazil, like years before we got to the first deal, right? And the story was sort of the they like caught Obama by surprise. Yeah. And he went, "Oh no, actually, no, no, no. Well, shoot, now I got to go find out if we do really want this. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so as they were withdrawing, we just started carpet bombing them. We killed thousands of people. But that was the idea from the beginning. We didn't we didn't want him to withdraw. No. Yeah. Awful. Really terrible. Uh, also, I mean, not also completely different news. Uh, got a cool picture of a black hole at the center of the, Very cool the picture. Milky Way. I mean, yeah. it's a cool picture. If you like, it's like a big it's like a big sort of orange yeah. ring with black in the middle with black in the center. Uh, I'm seeing it called a gentle giant. And maybe I'm uh not up to date on Gentle my giant. astronomy. It's astronomy so strong turns. that it, that light can't escape it. It sucks everything in. I know. How's that a gentle giant? The gentle giant that lies at the center of our galaxy. It's a giant black hole. It's a Sagittarius A at the core of the Milky Way. Yeah. <laughs> You've been wondering what lies at the heart pulling stars into orbits. Yeah. 
that's pretty it is pretty neat that we can yeah see this stuff yeah and it is pretty neat to think of the people who like figured out how to make that happen yeah but before you had this the computing power that we have nowadays you know when i was a freshman in college my physics teacher in a class of 300 people said hey thursday night nine o'clock i'm gonna be on the roof of the academic center with my telescope, come and take a look. I was the only person who showed up. Oh, no. And so I went there, and he was just standing there. He had it all set up. I looked through the little viewfinder, and um, and there was Jupiter yep. with eight little moons lined up in a straight oh, line, so four on cool. each side. That's so I'll cool. I'll never forget it. Coolest I mean, lucky thing I ever you. Saw. At least you didn't have to, like, jockey for a time at the no, telescope. Nobody cares. Always better when nobody's there. There are going to be a bunch of uh, lunar eclipses later this month. Sunday, partial lunar eclipses. Yeah, Sunday's yeah. going to be a total lunar eclipse. Yeah. It's going to make this, the uh, the moon look uh, blood red. Cool. It's going to be really fun. Lots to look forward to. we got to wrap up here. Thanks to our guests and the engineers and producers here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>